Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel, And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to Marin Talks Money, the podcast in which the people who know the markets explain the markets. This week, we're looking ahead to the rest of 2024. And yes, we do know that just because the year has changed doesn't mean that things have automatically changed, but we still just want to take this moment to talk about what's in store for the UK economy, what's in store for global markets. To do that with me as ever, senior reporter and money distilled author, the great John Steppick. Also in our London studio today, we are very lucky to have Simon French, Chief Economist and Head of Research at UK Investment Bank, Hanmia Gordon, and Laura Folt, Portfolio Manager at Janice Henderson Investors. Thank you both so much for joining us. And thank you, John, for being with me for the entire podcast today. Yay. Yay. Um, <laughs> Simon, I want to talk to you because, um, uh, A, you write excellent notes, which I love to read. Thank you very much. And uh, you also um, are inventing your own vocabulary to go in those notes. So the most recent one started, whisper it quietly, at risk of angering the declinists. But UK economic data has had a good couple of weeks. So let's talk about those declinists. We know, I think, what they are. Why are they wrong? It's something that I've seen a lot emerge in UK macroeconomic commentary uh, probably over the last six, seven years. It is in, inevitably linked to the Brexit referendum. A lot of individuals who had their political nose put out a joint, their economic nose uh, put out a joint uh, struggle, I think, to give an objective assessment uh, on UK economic data and benchmark it appropriately. So de a declinist will point out all the challenges facing uh, a particular economy, such as the UK, without benchmarking the same, let's say, industrial disputes. Y yes, we have industrial disputes and quite... Um, disruptive industrial disputes in the UK, but look at German macro, look at the impacts on the German economy from industrial action. When one is looking at the impact of energy costs on real incomes, again, a very UK-centric downbeat view on the impact it's done to real purchasing power, similar uh, impacts around the world. And so or if I try and do anything in my analysis, and, and thank you for your kind words at the outset, is to try and provide an objective assessment rather than something that I think is coloured at the outset. Yeah, do you know what I think we'd really like that I'm not going to ask you for is we'd like a list of those declinists, shouldn't we, John? So, 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 and so, that declinist. Um, I'd enjoy that. I'd enjoy that a lot. We could match it with the secret list that we keep. <laughs> right, Simon. So tell me then, what's going to go right for the UK this year? Because I want this to be a reasonably upbeat podcast. I accept it cannot be fully upbeat, but I want to be pretty upbeat. And I think, and I think you agree, that there's quite a lot that could go right this year. Tell us about those things. There's something which I've 
described as something of a relay handoff. You remember the, you know, the last day of an Olympics where inevitably the uh, GB uh, relay team dropped the baton, don't they? In the the four by one hundred, they even sometimes managed in the four by four hundred. But I see it as an economic baton passing from the last eighteen months, where households in the UK, which drive economic activity, consumer spending have had to use their balance sheets, their excess savings, take on a bit of extra leverage to deal with this cost of living squeeze. The handoff, the baton pass, and what I hope, not being a declinist, what I hope will happen is that real incomes uh, will take up the slack. So it's in, in corporate speak, it's handing over from the balance sheet, which households have had to rely on, to their P&L, their profit and loss account, because the the headline rate of inflation will dip below nominal income growth. You get real income growth. It's very difficult in my economic model, short of a massive spike in the precautionary savings of the UK households, to see an economic recession when you've got the kind of real income growth we're anticipating in 2024. Yeah, exactly. So you very rarely see a recession in periods of real wage growth, which we're back in now. You know, we so, I mean, you talk about falling inflation. We've already got inflation sub four. We've got nominal wage growth, you know, whatever it is, six, seven, the last estimates. So consumers are already back in decent real wage growth. We've had some tax cuts already. We might go on to talk about the budget. We might have some more. You know, on most estimates, household cash flow after everything they need to spend on you know, energy, fuel, et cetera, et cetera, is up seven, maybe 8% this year. You know, that's actually looking like a good year for the household. And we, we know that you can just bring it on to equities for a sec. We know that UK equities aren't just a proxy for the domestic economy. But there are a lot of small and medium-sized companies listed here in the UK that have been out of favour for a very long time. So if we can have a year that actually the household's doing a bit better, then surely it's a time to potentially take a look at some of those more domestically focused equities in the UK. If that is the case, if we are expecting to see sustained real wage growth, if we are expecting to see households in significantly better shape, if we're optimistic all round about the UK economy on that basis, can we also expect interest rate cuts? Well, the market certainly is telling you that. Uh, I, I th I'd be cautious of overinterpreting what the market is currently expecting in terms of interest rates uh, and reductions of four, five. Uh, um, four or five rate cuts for 125 to 150 basis points over the course of the next 12 months. That feels a bit rich for me. Uh, while encouragingly, and hopefully you saw it in the last note, on a three-month annualised basis, core inflation now in the UK is just 1.4%. And that provi provides the data, perhaps, for the, the Bank of England to, to think about moving interest rates back closer to what it thinks is a neutral rate. I think we do have to get through what is going to be quite a crucial April for core inflation. And, and why do I focus on April? It seems an, an odd uh, month of the year to focus on. But last year, if you decompose UK macro, you saw that there was a big uprating event uh, of benefits, pensions, the national living wage that generated some quite aggressive core inflationary prints in April, May and June of last year. Now, while not quite in the same nominal ballpark, they're still well above the rate of inflation or the rate of increases to the pension, to universal credit and to the national living wage. And therefore, I think the Bank of England, certainly if I was on the Monetary Policy Committee, I'd be saying, look, I want to see uh, some assurance that you're not going to have some second round effects of all of that before you go for the first rate cut. So my model 
So you get the first uh, rate cut in August when you start to get some of that data, and you maybe get one or two more by the end of the year. But for me, the market's a bit too rich on anticipating the scale of rate cuts it's pricing in at the moment. I don't disagree with Simon, but what I would say is I almost think to an extent it doesn't matter in that the market is pricing in what it's pricing in and it's already filtering through to mortgage rates. Mm. So you're seeing five-year mortgage rates. You know, I saw there was one, I think, starting with a three this morning from HSBC on a five-year. You know, that is what really matters to your average household. You know, the average household doesn't necessarily follow exactly what the Bank of England is going to do you know, in every month's NBC meeting. What matters to them is what they're going to pay on their mortgage. And you're already seeing that effectively having a stimulating effect on household finances today. So as long as the market's not completely wrong about the direction of travel, I think that's, that's what ultimately matters. What about savings rates, though? And one of the things that saved the economy last year, of course, was the fact that, well, uh, interest rates on debt went up, so did interest rates on deposit accounts. And we know that had a, a, a great effect on household confidence. Yes, and, and then credit to Bloomberg. I'm not just saying that because I'm a Bloomberg podcast, but I think Bloomberg analysis was the first to pick up on that. Um, about six to nine months ago, uh, the Resolution Foundation made a bit of a splash of it last week. I think we were somewhere in between in, in terms of picking out the trends from the pace with which UK retail banks uh, passed on uh, base rate increases to savers, partly not, not because they're charitable organisations, but partly because most uh, are on floating rate uh, products and to remain competitive, they they, they matched to some extent, the the increase, whereas the debt structure, particularly household mortgages, are on much more of a fixed term uh, and therefore are lagged through the refinancing cycle, meant that at a household cash flow level, it, interest rate increases were initially and are still stimulative. Now, because of the composition of who gets the interest rate, uh, who gets those additional interest payments and who actually pays them, we don't think it is macro stimulative and also one also needs to look at the corporate sector which gets somewhat drowned out by all of this a lot of the debt held by the uk corporate sector is linked to sonia so the overnight bank rate uh which man marked the increase uh in, in the policy rate so i think some people have overinterpreted this analysis as meaning the interest rates were stimulative overall for the economy i don't think that is right at all but certainly the scale of demand destruction from interest rate increases have been considerably lower in this cycle than it has been in previous cycles. But I was just going to say to Laura how this is being made apparent in the companies that you're talking to, because obviously you speak to kind of small companies on a regular basis. What's their feeling? Does it reflect the kind of relative optimism that we've got? Um, it's in the outlook for, for the year ahead. Yeah. I think What's quite interesting is most companies are still pretty cautious, with some exceptions. We saw Next report last week. Actually, that was that was a pretty good, um, pretty good numbers. We might, you know, famous last words. We might see good numbers from MS and they haven't come out at the time of recording. But but most companies, when you speak to them, are relatively cautious because they've had a difficult <laughs> couple of years. Right? They've had obviously COVID was not that long ago. They've had all sorts of problems with supply chains, with cost pressures, with labour shortages. But what you'll tend to find, and again, sort of famous last words, is that that cautiousness, I think, has now crept into analyst forecasts, which is what really matters when you look ahead. If, if earnings numbers are in the right place for 2024, and you're starting at a valuation on the UK, which is lower than historical 
average year is lower than other major developed markets, and you've got your earnings forecast in the right place, which when I look at individual companies, I think, yeah, okay, I think that actually looks like a reasonable forecast now. Not too optimistic, doesn't assume a big pickup in the economy, because, you know, who knows, ultimately, who knows what happens. That, to me, feels like a good place to start. UK company management teams, again, obviously, with some exceptions, do tend to be a pretty conservative bunch, (laughs) and so do UK investors. And I think that's actually... You know, that's, that's a good backdrop to start with. So there's a lot of scope for positive surprises, possibly. I think there's there's some scope. I mean, what, what you've got to remember is that there are pockets of, we, we always tend to talk in this type of thing about the UK economy, but actually there are so many individual subsectors with huge number of different end markets and actually pockets of the UK have effectively been in recession for the last you know, 12, 18 months. If you look at things like house building, you know, volumes have been are down, you know, comfortable volumes are down comfortably double digit. You know, the building materials companies are talking about volumes down 30 odd percent. You've got advertising companies, you know, the likes of ITV, the likes of some of the print media companies, again, proper, proper recessionary conditions already. And yet, you know, the likes of Next, the likes of MLS are having a good time. You know, there's a value to talking about averages for the economy. There's also a value about drilling down and seeing that some end markets have already had a very tough time and could could start to come out of the other side of that because of stimulating effects of mortgage rates, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's always worth, well, that, that that's my job effectively to look at individual companies. And there are companies where you can just start to see the greed and shoots, I think. I mean, Laura makes an excellent point, which is this has been in a very uneven uh, recovery in consumer spending. And uh, I think we're still living with the impact of uh, the pandemic in terms of consumer demand. If one looks at the data released this morning at the time of recording this podcast, from Barclay Card on spending in December, still huge demand for travel and leisure, mm-hmm. which feels again uh, uh, something of a pent-up frustration from periods of time from households who could not consume that. And that is bulletproof, uh, really bulletproof um, spending. Um, and you contrast that, of course, to the, 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 the real estate sector, building materials sector, very, very different picture. If I can just throw in the economic data on business confidence, and related back to Maren's opening question about declinism, you've got pan-euro, pan pan-eurozone business confidence surveys, the only country, major European country, where its business confidence is above its long-term average is the UK. That's Front-running some data on my note for, for later <laughs> in the week. <laughs> the other thing I just actually wanted to pick up quickly there was, I've noticed the recruitment sector, um, there's, a, there's clear evidence of a slowdown there. Is that reflecting issues in the jobs market or do you feel that is more of a, it's almost like a COVID pick through the Python thing? It's, you know, there was a boom and now in relative terms it's coming down. I think it's a relatively hard one to answer. So the context for this is that at the time of recording, Hayes, one of the big recruiters, had a profit warning this morning, shares are down to 10% off. What what it's hard to know is, okay, if the, this is literally one month of slowdown in December that they're reporting on so far. Everyone was expecting a slowdown. The shares generally of recruiters have not performed brilliantly. And here we are and it's happened and we've had a profit warning. The question is, is this one month just before Christmas where people go, actually, I don't want to move jobs right now. I'll leave it till the new year and I'll make a decision then. Or is it the start of a much more, a much broader slowdown? And that's almost what people have been waiting for in this type of sector. I don't actually own any recruiters. So it's not one I follow particularly closely, but in this type of sector, the shares have performed poorly, awaiting a downgrade. We now have the downgrade. 
So the question is, are we done or is there more to go? John, I credit you for not using the two two of my most hated words together, which is soft landing. Um, (laughs) It's regularly banded around and no one actually defines it. I despise it uh, almost as much as hard landing. Um, But but what you are looking at is a situation where in the UK economy, we have about 950,000 vacancies versus a long-term average of about 700,000 for the last 20 years. So suggestions, if you just took that metric alone, of excess demand versus its long-term average and the degree to which you can gradually as particularly a lot of, and I'd be interested to get Laura's view, is a lot of companies through the pandemic um, over-resourced on the labour side because they didn't know who was going to get those dreaded red lines on their COVID test and therefore couldn't come into work and therefore they over-resourced and we're still getting something what I've called the sort of right-sizing of labour share pithy, pithy uh, phraseology, isn't it? Um, but what you have there is, as that right size is, can it elegantly uh, go back to its long-term average without undershooting? And that is the delicate balance, and you, you alluded to interest rates. And the criticism that will come the way of central banks is if they have underestimated the lagged impact of some of these rate increases, and it's going to mean that they're currently making interest rate financial uh, conditions decisions that will impact in two years' time, the labour market in terms of labour demand will look very, very different to those aforementioned 950,000 vacancies we've got today. Mm. I mean, just from the perspective of companies and what I often hear them say, they worked very hard to recruit people during the pandemic. And you know, there were skills shortages, like I mentioned before, and it took them, in some cases, many years to fill. And now, even if they are seeing some downturn in demand, whether it's modest, whether it's deep, they're very keen to keep those people that they took a long time to find that they've trained up over a couple of years. And so what you often hear is we're going to keep what is probably over capacity for a short period of time and not let those people go. And you can, you know, as Simon's point, you can see that in the jobs numbers, you know, unemployment is remaining very low in the face of what's been an incredibly steep pace of interest rate rises that we're fairly long in the tooth in now. You know, it has been a good 12, 18 months. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. (laughs) You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Can we... 
move on from talking about the economy as a whole. I think let, let's all agree that we're not going to be declinists and that we expect a, a reasonably good year from the UK that we feel, although I'm pretty unconvinced on this, that inflation is, is controlled for now. I'm not convinced on that at all. There was a headline in one of the papers this morning saying that team transitory could take a bow. And I thought, well, on that basis, pretty much all inflation is transitory, right? If three years is transitory, then what, what isn't transitory? So I'm uh, yet to be convinced on inflation, but let, let's, let's say for now, this looks fine, that there may be some interest rate cuts towards the end of the year, that we're going to see a little real wage growth, that, that the UK is actually going to look quite good relative to some of the European economies, if not relative to the US economy. And that with that, that UK stock market at all levels remains phenomenally cheap. What might happen that might make the rest of the world notice or even domestic investors notice and actually buy some UK stocks? What might change the flow here? Um, Laura, have you any thoughts on what might actually bring people back into some of the funds that you manage? Thanks for that, Mark. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Wow, with friends like that, UK funds. Honestly, my most asked, and if I'm being honest, most frustrating <laughs> question, um, because I think I honestly think no one can ever tell you what a catalyst is before it happens. If, if I could sit here and say, well, here's what's going to happen, then, then wouldn't it have already happened? Mm. In December, and I'm really clutching at straws here, there was a slight increase in month-on-month positioning. If you look at the Merrill's fund manager survey that everyone looks at of global fund manager positioning, in December, there was a slight increase in allocation to the UK. Now, it remains... It's a turnaround. It's a turnaround. <laughs> it's the beginning. <laughs> you heard it here first. But in terms of the... It's still a big underweight, you know, to, to put it in an absolute context, the UK is one of the biggest underweights still, but there was a very slight increase in allocation. Now, my view is always that it becomes a self-fulfilling property, i.e. if the UK starts to outperform, mm. then other fund managers get, go, oh, hang on, what have you got over there? You know, it's Fomo such a rally. Yeah. Totally. It's such a relative game. But, but it's gone the other way for so, for so long. I mean, it's hard to see, for example, the um, the UK's big wealth managers have spent forever cutting their exposure to UK equities. It's hard to see them suddenly turning around and going, oh, whoops, we were wrong about, about having 80% exposure to the US. We're going to come back in and buy a little more or UK. And it's, it's unlikely that you'd suddenly see them turning around and go, bother, we wish we hadn't neglected UK small caps. You said, I mean, it seems like that it's so dug in now with, with these institutions that the UK is the wrong place to be. Now I'm at a climate. <laughs> yeah. I, I find... Some of the logic for that slightly wrong, though, in that sometimes you hear wealth managers go, look, well, the MSCI world rating is four. And you think, well, OK, these are clients with assets all in the UK, with liabilities in the UK. Surely it's more logical to match some of that with UK equities. Mm. And and again, I think it is a relative game in that, you know, if X wealth manager goes, well, I'm going to up my UK equities performance and suddenly does better. I think the same dynamics happen in the wealth management sector as in the fund management sector. So I do think if we start to see better performance, then it can feed on itself. And come back to valuation, there is this view of, oh, you're a total dinosaur, etc. <laughs> but, but ultimately, if you go back historically over very, very long time periods, value, your starting valuation makes a very big difference to your ending total return. And I don't see why I don't see why this should be different. Now that's over very long time periods and you know, 
people are well within their rights to say you could have said this a couple of years ago. You're saying it again now. Well, you did say it a couple of years ago. And I did. <laughs> and we are here now. We all did. <laughs> but, but the valuation argument still holds. Mm -hmm. Absolutely does. Uh, look, on catalysts, uh, and I'm mindful of Laura staring me and uh, the point of saying I don't believe anybody who can uh, attribute to catalysts uh, potential rally. I do think there are two policy proposals, and maybe we're coming on to talk about the budget, that I think the government are now actively looking at and not before time. Uh, and I'm just going to stand on my soapbox slightly in terms <laughs> of just the the way the UK regulator and the government has approached um, its savings industry is to think of it solely through the lens of returns available to to savers rather than the economic blowback in terms of the cost of capital for the UK corporate sector. And that has meant that a combination of that geography agnostic approach, which isn't matched in any other major economy, the um, Capital Markets Industry Task Force did a very good letter ahead of the autumn statement on this, laying out how rather than having a home bias, we have an active, well, we do have an active home bias, but it's against our home market in our pensions industry. We're the only major economy that does that. If we, if we think that, if we, we, we've been very naive if we don't think that has a blowback on business investment, hurdle rates, et cetera. So I do think that part of the solution, this is where I come to a policy proposal, has to be to reorientate our pension system to have more of a home bias in asset allocation. Now, that may be very uncomfortable for some people, particularly those on the savers lobby who wanted to be geographically agnostic. But the reality is uh, that the economic growth of which we are all beneficiaries of um, uh, stems from having healthy capital markets. And if we, if we, if we, deny our own market that that capital that's uh, that's an impediment the way through initially i think is through public sector defined benefit schemes why do i pick that cohort of pensions because if you yield a positive externality in economic parlance of economic growth it comes back to the exchequer in terms of tax receipts who is the ultimate guarantor for the investment risk on defined benefit public sector schemes it's very different with a private DB scheme, where it's the trustees or the underlying firm, or indeed DC schemes. So that's why those big behemoth uh, public sector DB schemes need to be given a de minimis allocation to UK equity. And that probably needs to be ma quite material double digits. We were back at 40% in 1990, we're now at 4% today. We probably need to go back probably to somewhere between the two. The other thing which is it was in the news again is the idea of tapping into the retail saver through a Brit ISA, uh, it's something I've put my my name to as, as being an advocate of. Not because it's perfect by any sense, but again, if one looks at the US economy and the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, they're actively subsidising their domestic cost of capital. And yet we are giving tax breaks to UK savers to subsidise the cost of capital for NVIDIA, for Tesla, for Microsoft, for Meta. It's madness. And I think the government are waking up to that. So, look, two proposals that could change the direction of flows. It's not without political cost. And it, it's my decent understanding that the Treasury um, lost their nerve back in November from doing this very, very close to the uh, to the autumn statement deadline. Um, but I think they may have more bravery in March, or at least I hope they will. 
Simon, do you think a Brit ISA, a Brit ISA should be um, additional to the ISAs we already have or folded into the current ISA structure? Folded in. Folded in. So you, maybe you'd have an, uh, an ISA wrapper in which, say, 50% was a Brit, a Brit ISA had to go into UK assets and the rest was allowed to go abroad, that kind of thing. Well, I'd go 100% and let's negotiate down if you want to. <laughs> Look, and, and, and by the way, I know there'll be people screaming at their radio or their PC listening to this going, you're talking your own book, you work at a UK investment bank. I, I recognise the seat that uh -huh. I'm in makes it difficult for me to make this agenda. This is why whenever I've put public commentary, either through my column or in podcasts like this, I've always come back to the economics of all of this, which is we simultaneously bemoan the lack of investment that's taken place in the UK economy, gross fixed capital formation within national accounts averaging about 18% of GDP compared to 24% in France, 23% in Germany, G7 average about 21%. That underinvestment of capital running a capex light economy gets its lack of stimulus from the fact that our, over many decades, and this is a politically agnostic comment, we have moved away from allocating capital to our domestic market. And we wonder why, you know, Laura will tell me, if a company, a company can inflate its short-term earnings by cutting its capital expenditure, and that can look very attractive initially to, to shareholders, but it does untold damage to their long-term earnings capability. And I think that's what we're seeing now. I mean, maybe if I could just add to that, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to my friends, most of my friends don't work in finance, I'm trying to explain, you know, de-equitisation, i.e. the shrinking of our equity market, does matter to people that work outside of finance, as Simon was explaining. You know, listed companies invest, UK listed companies invest more in the UK. We have had a massive productivity problem in the UK economy, partly due to lack of capex. I think de-equitisation, i.e. the shrinking of our market by takeovers, by share buybacks, etc., has quite a bit to do with that. So if we can reverse it, whether it's this Brit ISA, yes, it restricts people's choice a bit. You know, they might have to invest in Glaxo, not Pfizer. If they want if they want that tax wrapper, of course, you can go and invest in whatever you like, just not within an ISA wrapper. That could ultimately, and we'll have to wait, you know, five, ten years to see the results. But if it means that de-equitisation of the market is stopped or reduced, I do think it will have an impact on the UK economy, but that we won't see immediately. Of course we won't. But over a long-term time period. So yes, you're restricting choice in the short term, but it isn't just for the purposes of us in the city talking our own book. It's actually for the, for the health of the UK economy over the long term. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you think another thing that could come up in the budget that might be useful would be a, a reduction in, in stamp duty and that our level of stamp duty when it comes to, to equity trading is significantly higher than most other countries? Do you think that's any kind of, of barrier for the UK market and something that we could change? Well, I, I, again, I don't want to cut across Laura, but uh, the I mean, I give a lot of credit to Charles Hall from Peel Hunt, my equivalent uh, head of research over there, for pushing this as uh, one of the policy proposals. Uh, and I think he's on something. Uh, and also anecdotally speaking to US fund managers who are looking. They, when I first started writing, you talk about stale bulls of the UK valuation story. I'm a, probably a six, <laughs> seven year stale bull on this one. John and I are uh, so a well, yeah. yeah, so so we're so a mutual support group, aren't we? Um, but but uh, US fund manager, you know, who uh, many of his contemporaries six seven years ago said, "Oh, it's ah, what you're not missing. It's compositional, compositional." Or they made some excuse why the UK wasn't undervalued. You don't get that anymore. So mm. we have gone on a journey where everybody, almost agnostic of where they sit, where their seat is as, as an investor, recognises the valuation opportunity in the UK but also thinks there has to be a policy catalyst. We've talked about you know, a natural buyer through public sector DB schemes. We've talked about a natural buyer potentially through the Brit ISA. You're absolutely right. Reducing one of the impediments to owning UK equities, which is the transactional cost associated with stamp duty, is another one of those. The reason I haven't uh, thrown my weight behind that one uh, is simply because you know, my history of working in the, uh, the, the, the Treasury and the Civil Service means I think uh, the this point in the cycle, the, um, the Treasury is going to be reluctant to give up on at least near-term tax revenue, even if it has a long-term payoff. Interesting. I didn't know you used to work in the civil service, Simon. Yeah, <laughs> a decade. Yeah. I, to be honest, I think... Everybody knows that. He writes it in his notes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, Charles Hall, if you ever look at the, the Peel Hunts and Forecasts, there's a long list of suggestions in there around, you know, the British stamp duty, inheritance tax, et cetera, et cetera. And I think... I think a combination, even one of the above, you know, w would help. I, I don't think any of them are going to be a silver bullet, but I think it would really encourage me to, to know that the Treasury are looking at these initiatives and just, you know, as I said, one, even just one, would would help the market at this point. You're kind of saying that the UK market, and I suppose people have argued this in the past, is basically just too open and doesn't protect itself sufficiently. It's almost like we in the UK believe in perfect capital markets. Mm, yeah. When, which is uh, noble in a way, when when none of the other major geographies do. Yeah. You know, in a in a perfect world, what we do here, as you say, very open capital markets, open to things like M and A as well historically, um, and and we've seen the effects of that. But it it's it's not replicated elsewhere. So I think that's the problem. And there are parallels here, aren't there, with um, the Brexit, uh, what do we call it, uh, period uh, of UK macro, where um, I would love 
uh, you know, the UK to be able to unilaterally lower all its tariffs and trade barriers and every other country follow suit. Um, and there are many uh, on the libertarian wing of the Conservative Party who would like that to happen and they will be looking over their shoulders to see whether the Europeans or the Americans or the Chinese are going to follow suit and they will see themselves to be alone. Um, so there's much in modern it's not just economics, but actually modern politics, where you would very much like everybody collectively to move to a new, better equilibrium. When it comes to uh, the efficient market hypothesis, free flow of capital, um, we live in the world we live in, not the world we want to live in. Yeah, we tell our guests that a lot. <laughs> this could bring me back to weight loss drugs, but apparently I'm not allowed to talk about those today. So we'll, we'll leave those for now. And I'll tell you what, the world people want to live in, not the world they do live in. House prices. I know John wants to ask you about house prices. Don't you, John? I'd say yes. Um, so no, Simon, I'm going to go with Simon Postologist because I know he's actually got, you had a thesis on this. And it was very similar to mine, which is the 30% real terms fall probably over the course of about two-ish years from peak to trough. What are you thinking now? Because if I'm being honest, then, okay, price is down about 14-15% in real terms so far. I struggle given the fact that I'm moderately optimistic on the UK economy in 2024 to think that they're going to go down much further, even in real terms. And if I'm honest... I'm surprised that they only went down like 3 or 4% in nominal terms this year. Or sorry, last year. So I'm kind of curious to see where your mind is on that. Oh, uh, lies, damn lies and house price statistics. <laughs> um, so, for example, while nationwide Halifax may tell you that there are very small single-digit declines in UK house prices the last 12 months, if you go to the land registry and look at the total number of transactions and uh, the average transaction price in 2023 versus 2022, it's down about 7%. Mm. Uh, and it's down uh, about 11% from its peak, and that's in nominal terms. So you start to get towards the numbers we were talking yeah. about if you had an inflation over that that period. Now, that is just a – it's not a better methodology than Halifax because you've got some compositional effects in there. But it's just to, if you like – uh, perhaps defend some of those uh, bearish forecasts that I put out there on the UK housing market. Um, going forward, though, we have to be mindful of something, or I hope you're mindful of something I said about 10, 15 minutes ago, which is that delayed lag of interest rate increases. So while the economy, I think because of the P&L, the real earnings uh, picture, will improve, we're going to have cohorts particularly exposed to not just first-time buyers, but but also secondary activity in the market, who are going to come to a refinancing moment, which even if, and Laura is spot on, there are products now available at less than 4%, although SVRs are still up 6.5%, 7%, there's still some painful refinancing to come for millions of households, which makes me feel like nervous that this, this market is out of the woods. Oh, that's um, interesting. Interesting. I think, you know, coming at it from a house builder perspective, i.e. some of the listed companies, what they did this time last year was they they saw the dynamics happening in terms of interest rates and they sharply pulled back on volumes. And that's what's impacted the likes of the building materials companies that I was talking about earlier. So 
they effectively pulled the, le- they didn't, they never want to pull the price lever, right? Because you, you drop a pound of price, it drops very quickly through to your earnings. So they pulled back on land purchases. They, they pulled back on their building activity. And now rates have come down, as in mortgage rates have come down. The problem that the house builders have potentially got for this year is actually that they didn't buy land last year. So even if the housing market gets better, does pick up, don't know if it will, but just say it does, it's, it's effectively, it's effectively too late for this year because they haven't got the land, they haven't got the houses half built or not in the volumes that they could potentially need. So the, the housing market always comes with, with a lag. So this year, if they want to respond, it's the opposite. They'll have to use pricing as in prices will, it's not volumes, it's pricing for this year. So. House, calling house prices. <laughs> I know it's a national podcast, <laughs> but th- this year, if, if you're a house builder and you can't ramp up your volumes quickly, what do you do? You put up the price or you reduce the incentives. Okay, house prices called in opposite directions. I like that. Mm. Well, uh, but linking it back to the conversation we just had on equity markets, the US residential property market is about $47 trillion of value. And so is the US stock market. So one for one. And yet our residential market is eight and a half trillion and our stock market is two and a half trillion. So mm-hmm. we're kind of three and a half to one. If you're looking at a misallocation, systematic misallocation of capital yeah. in many, many, many years, just look at that ratio alone. We need to get you on here to just rant about house prices for like, you know, a podcast. Honestly, me and Mern could take the week we off. Could, <laughs> let's not do this anymore. Let's just have them do it every week. Anyway, when the UK equity market turns around, that ratio is going to change, Simon. So, you know, we'll be, we'll be fine. If John's yes. forecast that yes. house price falls go through and you two are right on UK equities being cheap, we'll be one to one by the beginning of next year. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. Now, listen, on to, on to everything's going to be wonderful. UK equities are going to do brilliantly. Laura, what do we buy? Tell us about some of your favorite stock. Okay, so start at the top. More domestic companies, I think, are where, is where the biggest valuation opportunity is. If you go, you know, Simon's men- mentioned Brexit. I know it feels odd to still be talking about Brexit. We're in 2024. But if you look at how domestic, so this is just UK shares, how international earners within the UK have done relative to domestic earners within the UK, the gap is huge. You know, we're talking 30 to 40% difference in total return since that Brexit vote. If you go before that, there isn't much of a difference, i.e. it's not the case that domestic companies always underperform. You know, you're picking Brexit, but it's irrelevant. It's not. There is a the big disjoint that happens around the time of the Brexit vote and that domestic PE, if you like, has been almost sustainably, with a few exceptions around elections, whatever, it's been almost sustainably derated since then. Okay, just, so be, clear that we're, point, just be clear, Laura, for the listeners, we're talking about a valuation difference, not about a, a business performance difference. Very good point. Yes. Sorry. We're talking about valuation difference, i.e. domestic UK has been sustained, has suffered a sustained derating since the Brexit vote. It's not that these shares have perennially underperformed. It's that people have had a preference for the more international end of the market, the Unilevers, the GSKs of the world, rather than the more domestic businesses. So my starting point is that it is the more domestic businesses that present the clearest value opportunity. They tend to be found at the smaller cap end of the market for very common sense reasons that 
you know, if you're a small company, where are you going to serve first? You're going to serve your domestic market first. And then if you're successful, you're going to go overseas. So domestic companies have more of their sales, more of their earnings here in the UK, whereas the FTSE 100 is you know, three quarters roughly overseas. The, the reverse is true for the FTSE small cap and once you get down to AIM. So that's that's my starting point. And then beyond that, there are industries, some of which we've spoken about already, that have been in recession conditions and where earnings have halved, in some cases more than halved. You know, the likes of building materials, uh, the likes of some advertising exposed companies. If you can buy a business where earnings have halved, more than halved, and yet you're still buying that business on a valuation that's below its long run average, i.e. you're buying low valuation on low earnings, to me that presents a pretty compelling opportunity for when those earnings turn around. Now, I can't sit here and say, you know, with some of these building materials companies, it's going to turn around this year. But what I can say is that I think earnings will recover over a sustained period of time. I can't give any, to be clear, this is not a stock recommendation. <laughs> but if we're, if we're talking companies, you know, what type of companies am I talking about? I'm talking about companies like, say, Ibstock, which is one of the big brick manufacturers here in the UK. There is no structural problem with that industry. You know, we still deed houses. We build them out of bricks. It's not super complicated. It's a very consolidated industry. There's only a couple of players. But bricks have had a very tough time for all the reasons we spoke about. Volumes are down materially. So we've seen a company like that lose roughly 40% of its earnings over the last couple of years. And yet the valuation is, is lower than its long run average. Um, I, I think this is a particularly interesting example because this is a company that was listed a number of years ago now by private equity. It was underinvested at the time of IPO. It's gone through a long period of catch-up, capex, etc., and it's lower than its IPO price. You know, it's on a lower valuation than that. And it would just well done, private it equity. Would be, well, quite. <laughs> but it would just be the irritation of my life if it got taken out. You know, as in if it got bid for. To be clear, there's no bid rumours whatsoever. If if it did. <laughs> Big yeah. rumours on every UK corporate, <laughs> <laughs> easier disclaimer. But it would be such an irritation if it got taken out by private equity again <laughs> at a valuation, you know, lower than what it got listed for when we as the public markets have found it, you know, funded a t ton of capex for it to be a much better invested business, for mm -hmm. it to be a better run business than when it was listed, which would just be so irritating and yet so typical. So it's that type of company that I'm... Looking at, you know, that we, to be clear, we own a company like that already. Um, but I think that is the more interesting end of the UK market. And it's not me saying that the likes of, you know, Glaxo Unilever are overvalued. Uh, you know, there is still a valuation discount at that large cap end of the market as well. But it's, it's all about, you know, relative valuation. And to me, it, it is the smaller, more domestic businesses that present the best value opportunity. But it's not to say that, you know, the likes of Burberry, Unilever, etc. aren't lowly valued. It's just about extremes within the UK market. Yeah. And this is the, the big danger that, that you've mentioned is that these companies are so inexpensive and uh, uh, we don't buy them. And eventually somebody else does. And then, then they're lost to us as we're losing a lot of companies at the smaller end of the market, aren't we? Yeah, I have a New Year's resolution for myself, which is must do better at rejecting overly miserly takeover deals because it's so tempting. You know, the, the day of a of a takeover deal from private equity, 
it feels great for your relative performance. And you think, yes, I've been vindicated. This this company it was too cheap. And a 50% premium or whatever it is, you know, 30, 50% premium. You think, yes, you know, I, I was right. Ha ha. But then that company is gone. You know, we need to get better at saying no, you know. Uh, and, and I have, we, you know, we have occasionally voted for deals where we feel really strongly. But I think as an industry, we could do better actually at publicly saying or well, not even publicly, just privately voting, voting deals down. Um, and then, you know, that is a... It, it, the power is effectively in our hands to to stop some of it, oh, and we should do better at yeah. that. Good and this is why. This is why. Well, this is why flows are so important, um, and why since twenty sixteen, the fact I think it's seventy eight out of ninety one quarters have seen outflows from UK equity funds. The uh, I'm not. Certainly not commenting on on, on Laura, uh, but the, the backbone of fund managers to say no becomes easier in a backdrop of inflows than it does in sustained outflows. Mm -hmm. And so this comes back, and perhaps we can link it to the US market, because we think there's something um, esoteric about UK equity market pro-cyclicality, negative pro-cyclicality of pricing. Look at the pro-cyclicality going on in the world's biggest stock market. We talk about this magnificent seven you are seeing performance bequeathing performance, liquidity bequeathing liquidity. You are seeing uh, some of the legacy of the way in which capital is allocated and those regulatory decisions manifesting itself in how prices are discovered. It's not healthy. From an economic allocative efficiency standpoint, it's not healthy. And I really hope, or well, maybe my news resolution, is just to be able to make that economic argument as to why if we only look at it through a capital agnostic savers lens, we do untold damage to the economic efficiency and if you like the social function of capital markets, which is a really great story. Not many story, great stories for bankers and investors to tell, but that is a good socially um, conscious story to tell. Is that just to sort of clarify that ever so slightly? Is that basically because I was thinking the other day we're we're living in a world where. Part of the big part of the problem to me seems to be that every marginal pound or dollar or even euro invested goes into the seven biggest stocks in America. Is that basically what we're talking about? Passive flow is just constantly pumping into the kind of slight black hole of capital over in the US. Again, it's uh, passive is part of the story, but again, I don't want to talk, sound like I'm so talking the active industry book, there are other things as well, which is the uh, momentum trading, uh, you know, performance bequeathing liquidity, the consolidation of fund uh, funds means that some of the smaller mid-cap end of the spectrum, we see it day to day. We try and get US investors into UK stocks and they say to us, how much does it trade per day? And we say, well, it trades £200,000 a day. I said, well, I love the company. I love the management team. I love the valuation. But my risk officer says that I can't do anything with sub, let's say, £2 million a day trading. And if you get yourself in a pro-cyclical doom loop, which is a, I mean, I know this has been a very upbeat podcast and I'm pleased it has, but let's acknowledge we are in a pro-cyclical doom loop. You need a catalyst 
to take you in the opposite direction, because otherwise you are blocking pools of capital out from taking really attractive investment opportunities in where Laura, a very, very respected fund manager uh, in London, recognises the value is. And yet she's not alone, but there are too many impediments amongst the big institutions from taking those stakes because of a lack of liquidity. Okay, I don't ever want to hear the phrase pro-cyclical doom loop on this podcast again. Okay? (laughs) (laughs) Write that down, John. No more doom loops. Bind list. (laughs) Okay. On the subject of flows creating performance, uh, this is a week when everyone's talking about Bitcoin, talking about possibility of the arrival of Bitcoin ETFs, etc. So we are going to move on to our final question to both of you, which we are obliged to ask every single week because we are keeping a record of the answers. And uh, we'll come back to name and shame over the next couple of years on this one. If you had to hold one asset and one asset only for 10 years, and you weren't allowed to trade at all, you just had to stick it in a room and leave it there. Of course, it's difficult to stick something non-physical in a room, but you know what I mean. If you had to do that, would you choose Bitcoin, gold, or for the uh, very cautious, we also offer a cash option? Oh, I'm going to pick gold only because I feel like I don't understand Bitcoin. As in, if someone can tell me what it's used for, I would I'd be open to that. <laughs> but at the moment, I just feel like I don't understand it. So I'm going to pick Gold. Do you know, Laura, there's Cash. a distinct possibility that you do understand it. That's the other thing, distinct. That you do, <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> Simon, did you actually say cash? I did. That's impressive. You are the first <laughs> person different. ever. Okay. Um, I know I, I just banned him because of the Doom Loop thing, but I'm unbanning him. Come on, Simon, tell us. Uh, why would I take cash against those other two options? <laughs> uh, because I think cash returns will. I mean, certainly exceed Bitcoin on on current valuations. It's uh, a fraud hiding in plain sight, uh, greater fool theory. All of these things uh, characterize uh, cryptocurrencies. It's as old as the hills. Private currencies eventually, uh, you know, it attracts sort of deviants and fraudsters. And uh, Bitcoin will be no different. It's just in a digital form rather than a vegetable. and gold, look, I, I like gold. And to some extent, I'm going the other side of the table to, to Laura because she said gold, she went first. <laughs> um, but I can also make a decent argument, actually, that cash returns over the next few years uh, will be better than a, a commodity that it's not far off its real terms high. It's very close to its nominal high. It's very close to its real terms high as well. So it's a little bit towards the top end of its historical range. So yeah, I can I can make an argument for cash. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. And Simon, would you mind if I make the headline to this podcast, Bitcoin fraud hiding in plain sight, says Simon French? <laughs> Be delighted. Would that work for you? Absolutely delighted. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you very much. We, we appreciate that. Uh, we like a bit of clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by one, one quick thing. I think Pippa went for cash as well. Did she? That was it. Yeah, yeah. She uh, knocked back Bitcoin and gold and went for cash last time. Because I remember because I was so struck by it. Mm. So you're afraid you're only the second person to go sorry, for Simon. Sorry, Simon. Sorry, <laughs> Simon. Really sorry, man. Sorry. Second. Not to worry. Often right. the case as a sell-side analyst, you're second <laughs> to the party. Bad luck. 
Thanks for listening to this week's Merrin Talks Money. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, if you like our show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Merrin Somerset Webb. It was produced by Sam Asadi. Additional editing by Blake Maples. Special thanks to Laura Fall, Simon French, and John Stepek. Be sure to sign up for John's daily newsletter, Money Distilled. The link is in the show notes. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia. And you get me, George Camel. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.